guys. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today's going to be a great episode with John Porter of Morning Creek Outfitters out of Cody, Wyoming. John is going to go over the Wyoming elk draw. That elk draw is due January 31st. You can do it online. Uh, So make sure you listen to this real fast. And if you haven't gotten your Wyoming application in, there's still time. You can also get a hold of John Porter at Morning Creek Outfitters through his Facebook page or look him up uh, uh, on his website. I want to thank you guys for your avid support and loyal support of this podcast. Uh, I want to let you know that you can always send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You've got any questions, comments, uh, and I'll try and answer them the best, be, the best that I can. Uh, just thank you so much for your support. I also want to thank my sponsors, GoHunt.com Insider, and remind you guys that if you use the J. Scott promo code, you get a $50 Kuyu gift card when you sign up for the Insider program. And the Insider uh, has just released, the GoHunt Insider has released their Arizona draw odds, the accurate draw odds, the most accurate. And uh, you can go on there as a non-resident or a resident, and you can look at each unit with the new uh, regulations of Arizona last year. Uh, These are the most accurate odds and will tell you exactly how many points it's going to take to draw uh, all the different elk and antelope units. I also want to thank Phonescope.com. Phonescope makes uh, digiscoping adapters for any phone to any binocular or any spotting scope. Uh, if you use the J. Scott 16 promo code, you get 10% discount. The Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority, 1-800-291-8065. The Outdoorsman's in Phoenix. Cody Nelson and his crew there do an awesome job. Uh, any any optics, tripods, anything to do with glassing. They've got backpacks. They've got bino harnesses. They've got all sorts of stuff down there. Use the J. Scott promo code and you get a 10% discount. Also want to thank RealGameCalls.com. Real Game Calls, if you use the J. Scott promo code, uh, you get 20% off on all uh, products, all calls at Real Game Calls. Obviously, the Elk Reel uh, got lots and lots of response from people that used uh, the Elk Reel, and all the response was how easy it is. Uh, They're just currently releasing their uh, Buck Reel and the Turkey Reel. Um, and it's the same principle, same type of design, uh, but making turkey calling and making uh, uh, a grunt calls uh, for bucks uh, easier to do. Uh, guys, without their support, this podcast wouldn't be possible. And I appreciate I get emails all the time that you guys are supporting those those uh, sponsors. So I want to thank them and thank you. And let's get right to this episode with John Porter. I also want to remind you if you're going to be at SCI, uh, next week, uh, send me an email, uh, send me a message through uh, Instagram um, at, at jscottoutdoors. Uh, I'd love to meet up with you and uh, also be at the NWTF convention in mid-February in Nashville, Tennessee. If you're listening, uh, I'd love to meet up. So uh, take care, guys. Uh, enjoy this episode with John Porter. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have John Porter from Morning Creek Outfitters based out of Cody, Wyoming. Uh, John is also a co-owner of Best of the West and Huskama Optics. Uh, John, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing very well today. Where, where have I found you? What part of the country are you in today? 
Well, I um, actually was at the Wild Sheep Convention in Reno last week, and now I'm out in Northern California doing some long-range shooting instruction, just some private schools putting on for some guys, and then headed back to the home base here in Cody, and then flying out pretty quick after that to go to Florida, uh, have several long-range shooting schools uh, set up down there, so... Um, kind of do quite a bit of touring around this time of year, hit a few outdoor shows and, uh, and a lot of shooting down the southern states, especially. And, and then always looking forward to application time here, get to talk with a lot of hunters and, um, then always looking forward to the hunting part in the fall because that's my mental break anymore. Um, uh, been doing that all my life, literally, uh, my dad and uncle were both outfitters there in the Cody area, and their uncle before them back as far as about 1950 or 51, I guess, we've been outfitting or professionally hunting there in the Cody, Wyoming area. So uh, it's a lot of good country and uh, pretty unique country, um, big-time mountains and uh, pretty rough country. Uh, we use a lot of horseback, uh, a lot of horses, do a lot of horseback hunts, and uh uh, just kind of been long family tradition. That's awesome. Let's uh, dive right into, um, and, and please uh, kind of start from the beginning from an elementary standpoint of the Wyoming uh, application process and a little bit how the draw works and kind of go through that uh, for me first. Okay, Jay, I'm happy to try to do that. It's fairly complicated, I guess, uh, especially if you haven't done it before. But uh, basically, Wyoming elk licenses for non-residents are all on a draw. There's no over-the-counter tags. Um, so and as a general rule, the, the draw licenses and the landowner licenses are non-transferable licenses. Um, I'll get into commissioner tags and governor's tags here a little bit later, but uh, basically the drawing is set up to where um, it's kind of neat in that Wyoming has uh, one of the first draws out there. So for a non-resident elk hunter or want-to-be elk hunter in Wyoming, they have to put in for an elk license uh, during the month of January. That's all done online. And then by the, roughly the end of February, you'll know whether or not you drew a license and get your money back there. Most of the guys are seeing their checks in the mail. Or now, I I believe they're doing all the refunds uh, back to your credit card now, uh, but not absolutely certain on that. Um, but that's what I'd heard. And so, so for a non-resident, uh, a lot of these guys will... You know, they'll search around and through some of the magazines and so on, and, and they'll look at some different areas and read some of the write-ups. But the best way to do your research is find out some of your friends that's hunted with somebody because every outfitter is a little different. Um, the types of guides he uses, the types of hunts, whether they're four-wheel drive hunts or backpack hunts or horseback hunts, uh, wilderness tent camping hunts or cabin accommodations, so there are a lot of different types of hunts. So in my opinion, the best way to do your research is search out a guide that you want to hunt with and then ask him the questions. You know, what's your area produce and so on. But anyways, once you've done your research, you figure out what area to go into. Um, 
Then you go online to the Wyoming Game and Fish website. You go into hunting and go into apply for or buy a license. And then you select a uh, an elk license. You put all your pertinent information in there. If you've never done this before or if you have done it before, you need to be sure and attach that to your sports person ID number uh, so that your points will carry over. And so when you're selecting an elk license to apply for, you have choices of, uh, as a non-resident, you'll have a choice of a regular or a special. Now what they've done here is the regular license is uh, just kind of what it insinuates, a regular license draw. And non-resident fee on that is $577 on the limited quota license. Um, it's less than that on the cow-calf licenses, which is their designated antlerless licenses. Um, and then they have a special draw, which is $1,057. Uh, and both of those, you can add the preference point option to it so that if you don't draw, then you're issued a preference point. Now, the reason they did that is they, they took 40% of the licenses, they set them aside for a special draw, which is uh, the idea was to give the guy that was willing to pay a little more money a little better drawing odds. And as a rule, that works out most of the time. Sometimes enough guys look at the drawing odds and jump back and forth. And so not always that you can count on that, but for the most part, that's the way it works. Um, the special draw, the higher-priced one, is a little bit better drawing odds. So then you go in and you select the area that you discussed with your outfitter or if you're going to do a DIY hunt, uh, you select that area and type and one of the things that's confusing to some people on Wyoming elk is people talk about a general license. Okay, that's a statewide general license. That does not mean you get to hunt anywhere in the state. That means anywhere in the state that they have a general license season. And so the majority of the areas that I hunt are now all limited quota. There is no general license season in there, for instance. So. Um, need to get all that sorted out, and uh, I guess uh, I don't know. Should what else do you need there, Jay? What well, am I not I guess explaining? One of the <laughs> questions I would have is for someone that's never applied and doesn't have any bonus points, and let's say they want to do the thousand fifty-seven special draw, and they want to hunt with you. What kind of chance do they have to draw right out of the gate, or is it like a lot of states where you really have to have a lot of points in order to draw? Well, that's one of the unique things about Wyoming, and thanks for bringing that up, Jay, because it's uh, it's really important to understand that Wyoming has what I would call a hybrid system. In other words, they have a preference point system, and it's a true preference point. Uh, in other words. 75% um, of the licenses are on a preference point draw. So when you apply for elk area 54 type 1, for instance, and you automatically go into the preference point draw, and then if you don't draw, 25% of those licenses are on a random draw. And random means that 1 point, 10 points, 0 points, you're in that random draw. 
and everybody goes into the random draw. Now, some areas there is not um, enough licenses to have a random tag, and so you have to be kind of careful of that, especially on some of these uh, smaller quota areas, because, like I say, the, the quota of licenses, let's say if there's 100 licenses in an area, Wyoming is set up on 16% non-resident on elk, uh, I think the sheep's 25%, but anyways, elk is 16%, and so then they will split uh, those 16 licenses, 60-40, uh, 60% of those will be in the uh, regular draw and 40% in the special higher price draw. And so then 25% of those is a random tag. So absolutely, Jay, this is something that, people really need to understand on the sheep, a lot of guys just buy points for 10 years or 15 years before they even attempt to apply. And um, I would recommend if you're planning, to, if you would like to go hunting, to apply for that license because you may well draw a random draw tag with no points. I mean, I've had two different people I know of hunted bighorn sheep with me, which normally takes 17, 18 plus preference points. Um, on the first year that they applied. And so um, that's the biggest thing to understand about Wyoming is there's two draws, an individual, uh, a preference point draw, and then you automatically, anybody that doesn't draw from that, goes into the random draw like New Mexico has. Right. So in other words, so. you, you know, someone could call you tomorrow and say, hey, I'm from Arizona. I want to apply for Wyoming. Uh, help me put in. And I want to hunt with you, and I mean, they could draw a random elk tag, and and have Absolutely. a good unit and have a good hunt. I mean, and you know, whereas in a lot of states, they'd have to call you and say, well, in 17 years, you can, you know, we'll be talking, and then you'll maybe have a chance. In in Wyoming, you actually have a chance your very first year. You absolutely do, um, and like I say, I've had a couple different people personally that I've guided that have drawn the first year on elk and on sheep, and so, um, you know, it's it's definitely possible. Okay, uh, and the areas that you guide and outfit, do you have a specific concession that you have to stay in, or can you guide in multiple units? That's one question, and are there other outfitters that can also guide in those areas, or is that your area? Um, very good question, Jay. And the way that works in the area that I'm in, I'm hunting predominantly uh, national forest and wilderness. And so Wyoming does have a wilderness law in that a non-resident cannot legally hunt in the wilderness without a guide which is a licensed guide working under an outfitter or a resident guide, which can be a, a friend or relative that lives, that is a resident of Wyoming. They're allowed to take two people a year um, as long as there's no money changing hands. If there's money changing hands, the check always has to be written to the outfitter and not to the guide, uh, the licensed guide, or the permitted resident guide so um and then as far as hunting in the wilderness that's one of the things that uh, a non-resident needs to be really careful of 
Uh, nowadays, you've got GPSs with some really good maps in them, and so it's there's really no excuse for getting on the wrong side of the line. But if they want to push it, um, and a non-resident walks over into the wilderness line uh, and and was to take an animal and then take that out of state, uh, technically that's an illegal take. And as soon as it crosses state lines, that's a Lacey Act violation, and that could remove your hunting and fishing privileges in a lot of states. So yeah, and, that's and really critical. Just, just to be clear, what you're saying is if a non-resident like myself applies, gets an elk license, doesn't either knows or doesn't know, and and crosses into the, you know, it's not like there's, you know, a, a, a fence that says, okay, now you're in the wilderness. You, you wander over an, a, a quote-unquote imaginary line and you kill an elk, and you think everything's great, and you take the elk back to Arizona, you cross, you know, New Mexico, you cross, you know, cross all the states going back, and you have taken an elk without a guide and or without a resident that's with you, uh, you could be subject to a Lacey Act violation. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's, if it's an illegal take, it's an illegal take. And if they take it across state lines, then it brings in the Interstate Commerce Act. So, um, absolutely. And so it's just something to be careful of. It's not something to be afraid of, especially with nowadays with the, the GPSs and the land ownership programs, um, that, that they have, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's no excuse for not knowing where you're at. Um, and that's one of the things that I've always been worried about in hunting in other states because hunting and shooting is a is a, most of my life, and uh, uh, outside a family that is my life, and so I'm always really worried about getting tripped up over some little thing accidentally and getting in trouble. And so um, that's you know the GPS programs are just great for that, and and uh, antelope hunting, for instance, is uh, you know, so much of Wyoming is checkerboarded BLM and private land, and you're technically you're not allowed to cross the corner post on that because that corner, by law, is is an infinitely small corner, and so you're not allowed to corner hop on that. And so having a GPS and you know it telling you um, who the landowner is so that you can contact the landowner. Um, and hopefully get permission or at least know to stay out of there is real critical. The same thing with the wilderness. So, <clears throat> For sure. What kind of uh, quality of bulls? Well, let, let's back up. What kind of hunts do you offer? Are there, are there archery hunts, uh, early rifle hunts, late rifle hunts? Kind of what kind of structure seasons does Wyoming do? And then, you know, in the units that you guide, what kind of hunts do you typically guide? Okay. Um, well, Jay, let's talk a little bit more about this this area stuff first as far as, because uh, we were starting to explain, um, you know, as far as the land ownership and the wilderness part of it and that. And so my areas are, um, I'm under Forest Service permit that's I'm per permitted on the Shoshone National Forest on the Wapiti um, district for some use, um, like sheep hunting and so on. Uh, but my main district is Clark's Fork district for elk. So uh, myself and there's about three other outfitters that 
that actively hunt that, uh, that Park Fork district. So that's areas that I'm limited to, and other guys can come into that. Um, the other thing about the Forest Service regulations on that is we're allowed to day hunt, which means like from my cabin, um, we can trailer the horses out of there or ride horses right out of there and go hunting and then come back and camp on the private land, um, you know, or stay in the cabin there. Um, but I'm not allowed to spike camp out uh, in the wilderness unless I have a priority use base camp is what they call it. It's a base camp. Um, then, and so one of the areas in particular, there's one whole major drainage there that realistically nobody else can hunt it because you can't, you can only day hunt about half of that drainage. And so the rest of that drainage is mine because I have the only uh, base camp, authorized base camp in there for, for the Forest Service. And so for hunting elk, that's, I'm the only one that can hunt that really. I mean, if they could ride that far in a day, they, they could hunt it, I guess, but logistically they just, they can't get it done. And then there's a couple of other outfitters in that other parts of that area that have the same scenario where there's just some upper ends of the couple big valleys that, um, in the day hunting I can't reach. And so, anyways, uh, getting back to your question on, um, on outfitting and the type of hunts that I do, um, there is archery licenses in those areas that I hunt. Um, I typically hunt sheep in September, and then the whole month of October is my main elk hunting season. And then I do have one area that I can hunt uh, that has a November season. Um, I don't I don't spend a lot of time in that area because it's got quite a bit of private ground in it. And uh, I like hunting in areas where if I ride out there on a horse and I see some bull elk that I want to go after that's six miles away walking across the big snow field and the spotting scope, I can go after them. So just my type of hunting, we stay at a cabin there. It's about a 1,200-square-foot log home that my dad built. Um, and got a bunk room on one end, and I run a real small operation. I have you know, one to four guys in camp at a time, and uh, myself and one other guy and a cook and a wrangler, and and um, we trailer horses out of there every day bright and early and go hunting for the day and come back and get out of the weather and dry our stuff out. And uh, um, a lot of rough country. Um, take somebody that's in pretty good shape to hunt that country. I mean, I mean, you don't need to be an iron man, but you need to be, you know, reasonable conditions because we'll hunt a lot of uh, seven to ten thousand foot elevation. Um, and, you know, on and off the horse and walking back off the mountains. Uh, you know, my dad taught me, you ride the horse up the mountain and then you lead him back down the mountain. So um, so we walk back down the mountain. Sometimes that's three or four mile walk back off the mountain until you get back on in the flats and, and then uh, ride back to the trailer and then trailer five or ten or maybe 25 miles back to the cabin and eat a good dinner and do it over again. I got a question about uh, riding the horse up the mountain and leading it down. Is that for uh, safety reasons or for for horse safety, or is that just for how you hunt as you ride up and then you take your time and walk down and, you know, pick it apart? 
No, it's more safety and longevity of the horses. And the way a horse is built, if you got an extra, you know, by the time you take a hunter and the saddle and the rifle and the day pack and the lunch and the water bottles and whatever else is hanging on that horse, I mean, you get an extra two, 200, 250, 300 pounds on that horse. Um, and so riding downhill, um, with the horse's big head and neck and everything that, that their balance point is right on the front end. And, uh, you know, a mountain horse will last probably five years longer before the front end starts getting really stiff in them. Um, you know, same with us, you know, our knees, we carry too big a loads and, and same deal with the horses, their front knees will get really stiff and arthritic if you don't, uh, you know, if you walk them downhill, you can probably get another five years out of them. And so uh, and then also the safety issue, when you're going down the hill, again, the, the weight is on the front legs on the horse and not much on the back. And so if that horse really slips and stuff and, and it can easily toss um, a hunter that's not used to riding much uh, out over the front and the horse can fall on him, you know, I mean, most of the horses are not going to try to but it's just safer to walk back down and it definitely saves on the animals and uh you know i my animals are my lifeline that's what it takes to hunt that country and i i get pretty attached to them and i try to take good care of them and if they'll haul me up the mountain i'll walk them back down that's good stuff um on a typical elk hunt with you um are you are you riding up in the dark and then you're up to your glassing point your vantage point at daylight and 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 doing a lot of long range glassing and then spotting and then and then making a play from there yeah that's just about exactly how it goes we we ride a lot of times in our country i mean in 30 minutes you're into the hunting it depends on where i go sometimes i'll leave an hour and a half before daylight but um a lot of times 30 minutes um because the last thing i want to do is bump into them in the dark and not be able to see them uh and kick them out of there you know and, uh, because these elk are they're used to traveling there's uh grizzlies and wolves in the areas and and they're used to some predators being around so they're a pretty wily animal and so normally wait until um, you know, depending on the area that I'm going, um, I may not go very far until I wait for it to get daylight. What time of year are these hunts? Uh, what, when do they, when are the dates usually? I predominantly hunt elk in October. Um, my main couple areas this season is October 1st to the 31st for rifle. Uh, and again, I, I typically don't take archery hunters for that. I have done it quite a lot in the past, but, um, anymore, I pretty much hunt sheep in September and then hunt elk and some mule deer in October too. And we've got, uh, it's been a hundred percent draw in our area on, on mule deer and, uh, got a lot of deer, uh, not real big deer, but, uh, uh, most of our deer are mature out in the 160, 170 range, um, not the super monsters, but a, an awesome hunt. So, what what kind of bulls? Um, what kind of quality are you seeing as far as size of bulls uh, on that October first through the thirty first uh, elk hunt? Well, kind of a normal year there. Like last year, I think the 
the smallest bull we killed was just barely under 320, and the biggest one we killed last year uh, was uh, 369. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we run normal year, and it can it depends a bit on weather. If it's really hot and mild, I mean, elk are just tougher to hunt. Um, but normal year, oh, average close to 340. Uh, sometimes on a real dry, hot year when everything's timbered up. Sometimes a, a 330 bull is a good one for the day. So, um, And then the flip side of that, too, is if a guy gets a little lucky in there, um, I have killed three bulls that grossed over 400, and all three of them netted in the 390s. And, you know, and so there's some of the best genetics in the world there. Um, those Yellowstone genetics are what they've put in the, the big reservations in Arizona and you know, that's where a lot of them elk come from. So, um, but they grow different there because of the seasons. Um, but you know, Wyoming's still got some awful good bulls, and I figure that have probably taken the neighborhood of eighty or eighty-five bulls in the last twenty years out of there over three fifty. Um, and uh, and that's just an estimate because most of the time I don't don't score them. I have hauled quite a lot of them into a taxidermist to get them officially scored although it's a green score you know so that i know but uh are the elk typically bugling still in that october 1st to 31st time frame or are they already kind of shut shut off you know it depends on the elk there's some of our resident elk that don't hardly bugle at all during the year i mean even during the rut they're sneaky boogers so (laughs) (laughs) um and uh and then there's um I mean, you can hear bugles up there any month of the year, um, you know, so it just depends on the particular bunches of elk and, you know, young bulls will just be carrying on and you'll actually hear quite a lot of bugling in October, especially when we get a bunch of the elk coming out of Yellowstone. Um, it seems like they're still trying to rut. And of course, you you know, in our area, it seems like you get the kind of the peak of the rut is that. 20th to 25th of September, and then about, I, don't, I honestly don't know exactly how long it is, but somewhere in about three weeks later, uh, the cows that didn't get bred will come back in, and uh, there's oftentimes that middle October, uh, even some of the resident bulls will get pretty wound up, so. That's good stuff, and so like 330, 340 bulls, uh, very, very common every year to see those types of bulls, and and then every once in a while get to shoot some, you know, 340, 350, maybe 360 type of bulls over the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, we always kill some, you know, 350 to 370-something bulls, um, you know, kind of a kind of a standard when I'm looking at them. Um, depending on the hunter, of course, because ultimately he's paid for the hunt and he's the one that says yes or no. But, um, to me, when them bulls get in that 340 range, they start getting pretty interesting. And, uh, I don't, I probably packed more than 400 of them out of that part of the country and I don't, don't really need to practice. So, but I like (laughs) hunting them when they, when they start getting in that 340 range, I think they're, they're a pretty impressive animal. For sure. Uh, are, are the genetics there on your bulls? Um, you know, every state seems to have, you know, big tops or big fronts or, you know, heavy bulls or, you know, maybe 
maybe thinner mass but long points is there any any one genetic that you can say yeah these bulls all have good fifth points or you know the the front ends are always pretty good or you know is there any characteristic that stands out in those bulls there that you hunt there is and i'll kind of quantify that a little bit first and saying that it depends on the bull because in this area um it depends on the weather and when they're losing their horns okay how hard they rutted i think depends on makes up their mind on when they're going to lose their horns and so a bull that's maybe a little bit younger bull that holds his horns a little bit longer um that bull is going to lose his horns, let's say, mid-April or 10th April. And that bull is going to grow a better bottom end because he's a little bit later and there's more forage available on an average year. And so, you know, your real old bulls, a lot of them will lose their horns maybe more like the 20th of March. And so those bulls are oftentimes shorter on the bottom end in this part of the country because it's still pretty wintry a lot of times you know not three weeks or even four weeks later can make a lot of difference on their bottom end but um i guess a characteristic that i've told a few people about here is i have a like an 88 edition of boot and crockett book and it's and if i remember right or something like <laughs> excuse me there's something like 10 or 11 or 12 bulls in there that break 60 inches on the main beam and I killed three of them in one year that broke 60 inches. Um, so what we do have here is big, long, stretched-out beams or the potential of it, depending on the weather and the and the forage. Um, we've got potential to have some, some of the real impressive tops. Um, a normal bull here does have a big top and does have a shorter front end than what you'd see come out of Arizona and stuff so it's just kind of opposite of what a lot of the Arizona stuff is where they grow the big bottoms so sure but so on if you had to throw out a characteristic you're saying that you see quite a few bulls with some solid long beams good good beam length yeah probably kills 50 or 60 bulls with over 55 inch main beams good you know um, uh, so real good solid main beams and they'll have, if they're that age, a bull, that eight, 10, 12 year old bull, they'll have, uh, good Royals. Um, uh, I don't seem to see super long Royals here, but, but a lot of 20, 23 inch Royals is real common on our, on our bigger bulls. Um, and you know, good fifths. Um, I say good solid fifths. Um, we have a mixed batch in here. We have some of the small third stuff, which oftentimes can be weak in, in a lot of areas. And, uh, and we actually have, uh, we don't see a lot of that. Um, we've got a lot of bulls with good solid, you know, 17, even, you know, I've killed bulls with 25 inch thirds, but a lot of good 16, 17, 18 inch thirds here. So, um, you know, that's, kind of what they're all about here in Wyoming I guess okay one question I have for you is backing up a little bit and and let's say that someone is a non-resident they want to apply for Wyoming but they want to do it themselves they want to DIY or or they want to 
do a backpack hunt or, or you know do it themselves that I don't want to hire an outfitter what percentage of hunters in in just Wyoming in general elk hunting in your mind don't hire an outfitter like a percentage wise I really don't know that um I really if I was to guess I'd say it's probably probably 30 percent of them or so or DIY as far as non-residents. Okay. Um, one of the big reasons is here is uh, it's pretty difficult to go into most of this country, especially the, the forest stuff there around in the Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, it's pretty difficult to go in there and do a hunt and, and even do it legally because there's all kinds of regulations here on food storage issues because of the grizzly bears, and it's got to be a minimum of 10 feet to the bottom of whatever you're hanging or it's got to be approved bear-resistant containers with recessed lids, and it's got to have the Forest Service sticker on it, or it's not approved. And so most logistically, guys... It's a pro- not, logistically, it creates problems for guys doing it themselves. Well, it does, and then and it can make it dangerous for other people, too, because if one of them bears comes into a camp, and even if the guys aren't there, they're out hunting for the day, and it comes into camp and it gets something to eat, that bear's going to be a problem for two years. Yeah. Okay? Maybe longer, because they remember, hey, I smelled humans, and I got a, I got something to eat. And uh, so it's really, really important in this part of the country to keep a really, really clean camp. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's just real hard with a backpack to to you know, to even to function legally because that means you've got to hire, you got to climb a tree and you got to cut a pole and you've got to attach that pole at least 13 or 14 feet above the ground. And it's got to be at least four feet out. Whatever you hang on there has to be 10 feet to the bottom of it. And at least four feet out from the trees on the side. So if there's a younger bear, it can't climb the tree and reach out there and rip it down. And so, um, you know, the, that's why I think there's a lot more guys go guided in Wyoming because of the wilderness law and the bear issues here. And uh, guys that are used to being around bears, you know, they just know the body language of a bear and they, they know how to act accordingly. And, uh, you know, I've never had to kill one of them here. Um, but I've had multiple times that I drew my pistol and bang one in the ground or something and, and manage to get them convinced to turn or or sometimes you know it's, it's inevitably most people that guide here for the amount of years that i do i figure i'm way behind because they usually end up killing a bear or two and and uh and end up doing it really close and they better be handy with the gun you know and i suppose bear spray in theory could work but uh there's so much wind here i'm afraid of it um you know, the bear's not going <laughs> to, he's not going to choose whether the wind's in your favor so you use your pepper spray or not because you don't yeah. want to paint yourself with it. So, but. Let's talk bears. Um, you know, on those October 1st through the 31st elk hunts, I mean, every year, will you see a grizzly bear every year or will you see multiples or is it, you know, t- tell me what kind of, uh, you know, what are you seeing? Sometimes you got to go four or five days without seeing one, and sometimes you see four or five in a day. So 
I'd say on average, I probably see a grizzly a day. Now, most of the times it's off, you know, on some other mountain where I'm glassing or something. But um, a normal week, I'll ride into one on a trail somewhere, and that's kind of why being horseback, I mean, bears don't come at people sitting on top of a horse. They're a big, impressive thing to a bear, and, and you just talk to them. And as long as you don't get between them and their cub, you're not going to get a in a jam, you just talk to them and say, hey, bear, you know, don't don't yell at them and startle them, you know, just, you know, just let them know you're there, and typically they hear your horses clattering down the trail or something anyways, and so um, that's why I tend to stick to my horses a lot um, and do some glassing from a distance, but, uh, yeah, bears can be, um, you don't want to take them lightly here, and you, you dang sure need to pay attention and uh, keep a clean camp. And one of the biggest problems that I foresee here, Jay, and if there's anything that I've said about anybody that might come hunting in Wyoming and thinking about doing it themselves, um, it should probably be this, and that if you kill an elk in my part of the country and you leave it overnight to go back and pack it out, like pretty much is common with backpacking, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you leave an elk here overnight, you got at least a 50% chance that there'll be a grizzly on it the next day. And so then what do you do about that? Okay. So if you get in there and you holler at the bear and the bear runs off, he may or may not stay off. Um, you know, you bang a shot or two into a stump, you know, close by and run the bear off. But the reality of it is, if you go in there and that bear has claimed that, if you cause a conflict that ends up in a dead bear, that's your fault, according to the Game and Fish and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So, um, you know, it's it's pretty tricky business. And uh, I oftentimes, when, if I do have to leave one out, which I hardly ever do, I normally just tie them on my saddle horse and walk out, even if it's 10 miles. Um, but... Uh, and I'll drag a pack horse with me, put half of it on a pack horse and half on my saddle horse and just walk out. But if you do have to leave one overnight, I typically try to drag the quarters and stuff away from the gut pile or the rest of the carcass, um, try to hang them up as high as I can get them with what I have with me at the time, thinking that the bear is probably going to go for the gut pile first, and then also drag it into a clear area where ideally I have an uphill approach with the horses. And if you ride in above them like that, and most of them bears will just run off. And as long as you can see them run for a ways off and see them leave the country or leave the valley, you know, then you're, I feel safe, I guess, going in there. But uh, um, So it I sounds like the worst place would be in a thick area that you don't have visual, you don't have very, you can't see very far, and where you're down in a hole, you want to, you want to approach from above so they see you and hear you coming and you want it, want it to be in an open area. The worst place would be a thick area and kind of down where those bears could be right on top of you before you know it. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's people that get killed here most years because of that. Um, so yeah, if you kill one in a bit of low thick area, you better get busy. Even if it takes you half the night and, get it quartered up and get it drug out of there and get it hung up to where you can at least see around it a ways to where you know you're not stepping into 
something to let that bear get within 20 yards or more of you. And bears are all a little different, but some of them bears, um, you get in like 30 yards or less on a bear, and they'll they'll flip a switch on you really quick. Um, in other words, they the flight or fight or flight um, response, I guess. Uh, you know, so you gotta you gotta really watch them. For sure. I want to ask you some questions about shooting in regards to elk and, and how you get your clients set up. And you're, you're the perfect guy to ask this question. Uh, but before I do that, uh, the sheep draw is at a different time than this January 31st deadline. Is that correct? So if we wanted to talk about sheep, we could do that in another podcast because I think it's later in the year, is it not? That is correct, yes. You, you put in for sheep up through the end of February, and then okay. by the 1st of May they have the drawing, so we got a month yet on the sheep. Okay, and, and um, you're a sheep nut, uh, I know that. If you had to pick hunting elk or hunting sheep, would it be an easy decision for you, or would it be a tough one? Gosh, I hope I don't ever have to give up either one, but I'm sure one of these days my knees will fall apart and I'll have to quit. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I guess if I had to pick one, I'm gonna keep hunting sheep as long as I can, and and uh, ideally I'm uh, I mean I won't what I do now. I've already pretty much given up the archery elk hunting so that I can can hunt sheep also. Yeah. Um, but if, if I had to give up one, um, I guess I've, I've only killed 131 rams, so, um, I still got a few more to go before I'm satisfied, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's yeah. great topic for another conversation. That's awesome. I can't wait for that. Um, I want to talk yeah. to you about advice that you can got, give guys listening that you, you know, you do shooting schools all over the country. Um, but you also have guided hunters for many, many years. And uh, there's things that hunters need to know from an elementary standpoint all the way up into a an ad- real advanced uh, you know, aspect of, of shooting and long-range shooting. But kind of give me the speech that you give to your hunters that are hunting about you know, their setup, uh, you know, maybe even their gun, how they position their backpack. Are they always shooting prone? You know, kind of walk me through, um, and don't be afraid to, you know, go as elementary to as advanced as you would like in how you prepare guys to set up to shoot at an animal. Okay. Well, first of all, let me kind of explain to the people listening here, um, a little bit about my background. Again, my dad and uncle were both uh, not only outfitters but competitive shooters and um, relatively small-time competitive shooters, but but quite accomplished in what they did do. And my dad was a good enough shooting coach to where um, he had me to the point by the time I was 16, um, I shot the U.S. Olympic team tryouts twice before I graduated high school. And it was because of what my father taught me uh, from a shooting standpoint. And and most of what I've accomplished in the hunting world is um, because my father was a, a much more patient man than myself, a very good teacher, and 
Um, he was an excellent hunter, a very smart hunter, um, as well as very seasoned, um, having been trained from the time he was a teenager um, by his uncle in the in the guiding world. And so, you know, and then I went on to shoot. I mean, I shot six years on the all-guard team doing nothing but shooting 150 to 180 days a year. And so the end result was I was fortunate to grow up in an environment where I got to train under probably a dozen or so of the best coaches in the world. And so, um, and I really think that my dad was um, definitely one of the best hunters I've ever been around. I learned far more from him than I have any other one person, but I also spent time with him. But he was a good, a good teacher in shooting and hunting. So there's not very many people that have taken the, competitive shooting from bench rest and long range and in the most precision of the like three precision international style shooting like it did uh, with the Olympic team or shooting Olympic team trials and so on. There's very few people that have taken that type of shooting background and applied it to, to the hunting world and then adapted that to uh, trying to make it um, simple enough for the guy that doesn't spend a lot of time shooting, but try to figure out ways of teaching uh, how to how to how to learn. I guess. Um, in other words, what I do in these shooting schools is I try to teach people how to get in a position, how to get in a backpack, what few little things you can carry, like a nice lightweight little tripod with a nice leather bench rest type head on it that weighs you know about a pound but is a superior rest when you get in on a hillside somewhere and you need to make a, a longer than expected shot. And then, then I teach guys how to, um, well, kind of like archery. Okay. If you want to be deadly at 40 yards, what do you do? You put your target at 80 and you shoot it a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so long range shooting is, I mean, I do a lot of shooting, you know, 1,400 yards, 1,800, 2,000 yards. Um, and so for me to shoot something at eight or 900 yards, um, that you know, if I'm not dealing with a bunch of real crazy winds, um, I mean, I've killed coyotes farther than that. So, um, you know, hitting the lungs on an elk is not a big deal. But for every person, you know, they, they take these, you know, a good scope like our Huskamo scope and a good rangefinder. Now they know exactly how far it is. They they've got the scope with a turret that is exactly matched to that gun and that load, and narrowed down to a fairly narrow margin on air density, i.e. the the altitude and temperature. And so then they set down um, with that scenario when they're training and. They should learn what kind of shots they can make. And probably even more importantly is what kind of shots they shouldn't try on an animal. Because the last thing I want to see anybody doing is, oh, I wanted to shoot one at a thousand yards, you know. So, so I tried it and I ended up wounded something. Well, you know, unethical people are always going to be unethical. So the key to any weapon system is learn what you can do with it and what you can't do with it. And so then you go to the field and practice, and, I mean, I've walked away from 400-yard shots with hunters because I didn't feel like we were going to be able to get it done, and I've shot a few shots over a 1,000. 
with hunters because I knew the guy. I watched him, how he handled the gun, watched the, you know the position he was in, uh, minimal wind to deal with, um, and knew the guy would just listen and squeeze the trigger for me, and I can do the rest. Um, so, you know, it just a lot of the guys that hunt with me, um, they've either bought one of our guns or, or one of our scopes on another custom gun or one of our scopes on a, on a good shooting factory rifle. Or a lot of the guys just say, well, why would I bring my gun, John? <laughs> you always have two or three set in there that's better than anything I got. So, you know, a lot of these guys are just, you know, they don't even want to deal with guns at the airport because... They know what I've got, and I've got another one sitting right beside it that can go tomorrow if that one gets, you know, dropped or something falls on it or horse rolls over on it or something. So, um, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and, and even more than that, uh, talk a little bit about how important it is from a prone position, you know, as far as, you know, trying to get as close to the ground as possible trying to have us, you know, eliminate any of the variables. Um, but from an actual setting up to shoot, what, what advice can you give guys as far as getting the gun positioned, set up, and and steady? Uh, go through some of that. Okay, so most guys sight the rifle in off of a bench, right? So um, when they set up a front rest and a rear rest, in other words, they're back by the sling swivel on the back end of the gun, and they're up fairly close to the swing, sling swivel on the front end of the gun. And so you're spreading those two points out. And the way that that gun shoots on a bench, if you want that gun to shoot in the same place in the field, you have to simulate that same support so that that gun is tracking the same. And what I mean by that is... That gun will start to move before the bullet is out of the end of the barrel, okay? Um, so I always try to teach guys just to, you know, if you're shooting, if you're using your backpack for rest on the front of the gun, fine. Um, I try to keep everybody from ever touching the front of the gun. A lot of guys will want to hang on to the front of the gun. And, uh, you know, all your... If you're a right-handed shooter, let's lay your left hand up there on the front of the gun, either put your finger over the barrel or your hand on top of the scope or something. All that can possibly do is increase movement. Okay, I use my left hand back in underneath on some gloves or a hat or a little sandbag I've got filled with styrofoam balls that I oftentimes carry with me and support that back end of the gun because I want front end and back end supported exactly like the gun was shot off the bench. And I simulate that position in the field. And so when I'm hunting, I might be three miles away. And when I look at where there's a bunch of rams or a bull elk going out on the meadow, the first thing I'm looking for is a little flat spot in that ridge on the downwind side, because I'm using my spotting scope to check the mirage to know which way the wind's blowing over there. And then I'm planning my stock. And, and going to that position where ideally I'm shooting a relatively level shot, if at all possible, so that I can support my gun the same way it was on the bench, and then I've minimized that variable of of angle shooting and 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 gun tracking, especially on angle shots. Um, you know, I've I've seen a lot of guys have difficulty with that. 
some guys that's got real stiff necks. Um, I've had a number of older guys that I try to get them down in the prone position and can't do it. They can't lay down and bend their neck enough to shoot in a prone position. So I ended up taking uh, shooting sticks or like a tripod, that one of the Husqvarna tripods that I carry a lot with me, um, will go up to about 46 inches. So I'll set that up in front of them, let them support the front end of the gun on that, and back them up against the tree so that their shoulder's on a tree to stabilize the back end of the gun. I've had guys shoot 600-yard shots sitting like that. But if you properly supported, um, they just need to know if they're holding good enough. And like on a sheep, what I'll do with the guys is I say, okay, what we're going to do here is we're going to dry fire a little bit. Because one of the great things about long-range shooting is you've got time. Okay, almost invariably you have plenty of time. I can coach that guy through that. I can keep him calm. Um, the sheep oftentimes don't know we're there. So I'll have him hold the crosshairs in the middle of the sheep's horn and dry fire, squeezing the trigger. And I said, I want you to count one, one thousand, two, one thousand until you ever come off the gun. And I said, you need to be able to squeeze that and have good enough follow through maintain that crosshair in that animal for two seconds after the dry fire. And sometimes we'll sit and work on that for a half hour before we shoot because if I don't think the guy's going to make a good shot on the animal, we don't shoot. And distance is only relevant to what I think as a coach on how he's getting a hold of the gun, what the wind's doing, what kind of position he's in, how excited he is and all that. So most of my tracking jobs have come from getting into something close and everything's a big rush, rush, and too much excitement and animals moving and all that, that's where I end up with most of the tracking jobs that I've ever had. Sure. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like hunting with you, um, not only are you getting a great hunting experience, but you're getting a real education as far as how to be shooting in the mountains. And it sounds like um just by the way you explain that that i'm sure you get a lot of guys that just come hunt because they want to learn um you got any thoughts on that well i've had a number of guys come here because of the country um and uh like on deer hunts for instance because you know these region f deer licenses have been 100 percent draw where i hunt so um it's just a it's a real laid-back hunt um if guys are looking for the 200-incher, um, I don't take them. I mean, it's not very many 200-inchers in my part of the country. If you're looking for a, like a 160, 170-type buck, you know, then that's about what those deer mature out at. And so, but they come here and, and hunt with me, and they like like, like my horses. I've got some, some great stock, um, and we ride around the country and, sit and have lunch on a hillside while we're glassing and talk about shooting and hunting and it's a it's a great experience and uh um i mean i've been so fortunate in my life to have got to do this fact i i think i guided 13 seasons or something in alaska too uh, i used to do a lot of that and so i've got to be around some a lot of professional guides um a lot of outfitters and, and learned a lot from everybody and i've always tried to be as good a student of the subject as I could um, and uh, 
So, you know, fortunate to grow up in that environment and, and happy to pass it on if I can. And, and if, you know, guys want to want to come enjoy it when it's great country. For sure. Um, how do you run your shooting schools? How can guys get a hold of you to, one, go through a shooting school with you, two, maybe private shooting lessons, and three, how do they book a hunt with you? You know, they can call Best of the West, um, and we have some of those online. We do a lot of private shooting schools, and how those come about is somebody calls up and says, hey, you know, i got some buddies and I that would really like you to come to our place. We've got a place to shoot. We've got the range. We just need somebody to teach us. And so we'll show up with a truckload of guns and ammunition and, and go out and teach them. And so, um, you know, we charge anywhere from, like seven fifty a day to to uh, maybe two thousand or twenty five hundred for a two day school, uh, depending on accommodations and stuff at some ranch and and sometimes we even have, um, like on Facebook we'll just put out feelers or something for, um, like on my personal page if if we're going to be in a certain area, um, and we have room for a couple more guys on that school. If it's okay with the guys who originally started the school, um, and so um, you know that's kind of how we do that. And you know, if they're looking to get a hold of me too, they can always look up the Morning Creek Outfitters. Uh, it's my own personal outfitting business, and then uh, Best of the West uh, has always got uh, numbers for us. You know, cell phone numbers and stuff if we're on the road. So. Awesome. Well, um, I really appreciate you spending time with us today talking about elk hunting, talking about Wyoming and the draw and talking about shooting and bears and all the great stuff that we covered. And I uh, look forward to um, talking to you maybe down the road here about sheep and and uh, encourage anyone that's looking at hunting in Wyoming. There's still time uh, and uh, get a hold of John and uh, yeah, just uh Appreciate appreciate you spending or you know spreading your expertise here with us and uh, spending a little time and and uh, I haven't met you in person but I look forward to someday uh, down the road here and uh, I'm actually going to be up in Jackson uh, this this uh, summer and and fall for for a couple months so um, I'd love to maybe come over to Cody and and uh, meet you in person so uh, John you know Jay. Jay, it's looking like we're going to be down in, um, probably going to be doing a couple weeks in Arizona here in, uh, in April sometime. Uh, so I'll maybe keep in touch with you there and, uh, um, we're going to do some shooting schools down there and, and there's a couple of those that, that may well have some openings and stuff too. So, um, you know, something we'll just kind of keep in touch on that and, uh, thank you for inviting me and I, I hope I've shared some information for you, um, you know, that hopefully help answer some questions for some people. So thank you, sir. Absolutely, John. You take care. Have a a great day. God bless. Okay? Thank you. All right, buddy. Bye.